Hello, Reboot Rats. Welcome to a special episode. Before we get into it, though, Alexi and I have a little bit of an announcement that we would like to discuss. It's something that we're very, very excited about, and I'm really excited to freaking tell the guys about it finally. Me too, yeah. So, we have been loving doing this podcast for a little while now. I don't even know how long we've been doing it for. What is it? A couple of years? About about 15, 16, 17 years or something? Yeah, I guess so. Probably. I mean, I'm 18 years old. I started this podcast when I was two, so about that. (laughs) Yeah, about that. (laughs) But for a long time now, we've been having dreams, big dreams of expanding beyond the simple podcast channel, haven't we? We have. We've wanted to kind of go bigger, go... Just kind of like stretch out what we were doing on this podcast and find new ways to talk about movies and pop culture. And uh, we kind of have the opportunity to do something like that now with this very show. That's true. So for uh, the last few years, we've been working with the wonderful people over at Sands Pants Network. We love those dudes. We love them. They are beautiful. They are fabulously talented they are they're fantastic. our family they're, i really think of the sans pants network and the joels and jackson and everyone there as like our podcast family they're our closest relatives they are our familiar we share a bucket of corona with them <laughs> and we ride around the streets one quarter mile at a time <laughs> very slowly Very, very slowly. But, uh, you know, we have been thinking about expanding and going out on our own a little bit, which is something Mm -hmm. that looks like it's going to happen within the next, you know, six months or so. Alexi and I, well, what do we want to do? We have, why don't we tell them a little bit about what we want to do with this show? So, we have kind of thought of ourselves for a little while as the video store clerks of the internet. And we kind of wanted to make our output and the what we put out into the world through podcasting, etc., to kind of fit that more and to kind mm. of express that feeling more. So we're kind of thinking about this podcast now as a bit of like a virtual video store. And we've been loving doing like the new release reviews so much. Like that's been something that has been such a fun way to update what we do. And so we kind of think of Total Reboot, the podcast as it is, as a bit of a virtual video store where we're going to cover our new releases and that's going to be the new release reviews. Then we're going to have our weekly film club, which is the miniseries content where we look at a miniseries in depth, talk about it for a long time and kind of like dig in deep into popular culture. And beyond that, Cameron, we kind Mm. of see ourselves as the video store clerks of the internet because, you know, what do clerks do after hours? They sit back, they chat, they engage with their audience. And they talk about the sort of weird stories of popular culture that have been, you know, reverberating around a little bit. And this is something that Alexi and I love to do. If you've ever listened to our podcast series, Finding Drago or Finding Desperado, which we made with the ABC. We want to make more of those and we want to make them for ourselves. We no longer want to be shackled to a broadcast (laughs) network. We want to make them independently so we can tell the stories that we want to do. And that's what we're going to do on this show as part of our little... Uh, You know, under our after hours umbrella. So probably once a month coming up in the future, 
We're a little further you, down the line, I'd a little, say. A little further down the line, we're going to give you a monthly investigative documentary miniseries under the title After Hours, probably. And uh, we'll go deep on some weird mysteries that exist out there on the fringes of pop culture. So we want you to think of this podcast uh, feed no longer as just a weekly miniseries club. It's going to be a one-stop shop for all things movies, all things pop culture, and all things weird, fucking freaky, deaky mysteries out there online. That's kind of what's happening here. Pretty much. So stick around with us. Some cool big things are happening. We're really excited about, like, really mixing things up and just kind of getting excited about putting all of our podcasting voice into this one stream and really bring to life kind of the last video store around. Exactly. So, you know, keep your eyes peeled. The expansion is happening over the next six months or so. It might be a little slow. We might mm-hmm. drip feed it. Not too much is going to change. You're just going to get more. You're getting exactly. more from us and you're getting more variety. And uh, we there'll be a website attached to it that will have video and written content coming Eventually, out. Eventually, yes. Eventually, uh, we... You'll be able to finally see what the frick we look like and we are gorgeous, <laughs> honey. Don't you worry about it. And who knows, the podcast name might even change a little bit. We might change mm. something there. But it's, it's all going to be just more of what you love from this show. Absolutely. And just again, we love our family at Sans Pants. It's, you know, it was a tough thing to decide to move away and try and start some things up elsewhere. Um, but I would say we still love them. So they're going to be on the show probably even more now yeah. that we're making more episodes. Exactly. We'll be tapping their talent even more than we already do. <laughs> so anyway, we're... This is just a bit of an early pre-announcement as things start to change a little bit. We just want to share some exciting news with you guys. Yeah. Uh, but things will be happening slowly, excitingly, as we want things to turn out beautifully. Um, but in the meantime, we are continuing the Millennium Mindfuck miniseries. This episode is going to be about The Truman Show. Mm. And we'll be posting what the other movies that we're adding to the Millennium Mindfuck miniseries are over at our Facebook page, our Facebook group, and our Twitter profile. We'll be posting it from our Twitter profile. <laughs> and probably our individual Instagrams as well. So Absolutely. keep your eyes peeled. Big, exciting things coming. I'm excited. Alexi's excited. You should be excited. And if you're not, then there's something wrong with your brain, possibly. Yes. Go to your doctor. Get them to flush <laughs> that parasite out of your head to allow you to once again feel human emotion of excitement for your two dearest friends, the last clerks of the last video store on the internet. But in the meantime, let's get our minds fucked. Oi! Welcome to Total Reboot, the only podcast on the internet about movies. And in case I don't see ya, good afternoon, good evening, and good night to all of you. I'm Cameron James, and I'm joined across the Zoom by the sensational, (laughs) the fantastic, the magnificent Alexi Toliopoulos. 
Wow, Cameron, it has been one of my biggest dreams to finally discuss the works of Peter Weird on this podcast. Yeah, a lot of people call this guy Peter Weird, but this is a freaky deaky movie we're talking about. The guy's certainly Peter Weird, in my opinion. We're talking about The Truman Show, of course, directed by Peter Weird. Um, starring Jim Carrey, one of the most fabulously strange actors out there in the in the world of cinema. One of the most famous men to have ever tread the boards of stand-up comedy, sketch comedy, mm-hmm. character-based comedy, mm-hmm. and what the frick, looking at this movie, dramatic acting as well? Yeah, I'm really excited to dive into it with this one because this was a big turning point in Jim's career and you could you could arguably say... It's changed it for the worse, but um, <laughs> I do think that it's a very special movie, and I I have it. I hold it in kind of the highest fucking regard. If wow. you know what I mean. I think I do know what you mean in that you mean that it's a really wonderful movie, and you think it's fantastic, and you have respect for it. Yeah, pr- that's basically it. Yeah, so maybe we should end the episode here. <laughs> I'm really, like, so stoked that we've added this to the Millennium Mindfuck miniseries. Mm. Uh, it seems like a freaking no-brainer. I remember mm. our friend Shuba, who's been on the podcast for- before, suggested this one on Twitter when we put out what we think needs to be added to the miniseries. And it hit me straight away going like, oh, I didn't even consider the Truman Show because yeah. it looks so down to earth. Mm. But it has to be one of the most significant and consequential mind benders of the Millennium Mindfuck period because it, I would even say like up there with the Matrix as far as like philosophy goes to Mm. how philosophy has incorporated a dramatic piece of art into like their, into like how philosophies are explained and how reality is explained. Yeah, it's um. There's a reason a lot of people study this film in Year Twelve English or write essays about it. I know I did when I was at school, and rightfully so. It's kind of basic. All the philosophy is right there on the surface of the film. A fucking godlike character is called Christoph for fuck's sake. Mm-hmm. Like it's not subtle. It but stands it- for Christ off. Okay, it- he is Christ, yet he is off kilter. He's a little off. He's a little bit off. <laughs> So, but, you know, for all its, like, basic uh, philosophical leanings, it is still a very complex film filled with amazing performances and, obviously, incredible direction by Peter Weird. Um, I want to go back to the beginning, though, Alexi. Tell me Mm -hmm. about your experiences with this film. When did you see it? Why did you see it? Were you expecting a comedy? Were you surprised by James Carey's performance in this film? Uh I've never heard anyone say James Carey before, and it freaked me the fuck out to hear it. Yeah, well, this is a freaky-deaky miniseries, brother. Get used to it. Truly, I felt unsettled, as you said. It's something regurgitated <laughs> in my body. Um, I would have seen this movie really early. Um, uh, I Like, well, while I was quite young, not too long after it was released, it played on TV a lot here in Australia. Yeah. I feel like every time it came on, I would re-watch it. I had a DVD, but more so than anything, Cam, I would say that during my teenage years, there was a time in my life, and it still it still is, 
But uh, Peter Weir was like my idol. He was my favorite mm. filmmaker, especially being like, you know, a young person from Australia wanting to make Australian movies one day. Um, Peter Wee was the guy like he is the most heralded filmmaker in our country that we have from a you know from the new wave period mm. until you know he stopped really making movies in like the 2010s and I went to the film school I went to Australian film television and radio school afters because Peter Weir was a graduate of that school mm. and I kind of saw him as a true idol, him and like Gillian Armstrong as like the true idols of someone that I was like, oh, you can have a career in Australia in film 50 yeah. years ago. And yeah. then I decided to pursue it anyway. Yeah. But- Before things change and now there's only five working filmmakers in this country. Yeah. And I'm trying to become a YouTube guy. That's my now <laughs> my new goal, trying to become a YouTube guy. I'm moving into TikTok myself, but that's just me. Oh, it's a wondrous art form. I've worked in the TikTok field, and actually, this is honest, it's awesome. I think it's awesome to tell stories a minute at a time. Groundbreaking. Changed my life. Yeah, I um, was asked to work on a TikTok series, and I said no. You you will live to regret it. Working on a TikTok series (laughs) was actually one of the greatest creative experiences I've had recently. I think it's pretty cool. I just don't know if I have it in me, you know what I mean? I'm a podcast guy at the end of the day. Give me the long form. It's true. Cam, what is your background with The Truman Show? Are you as deeply invested in the works of Peter Weir and his alternate being, Peter Weird? You know, I've come to really love Peter Weir over the years, but I didn't begin my love for this movie with the director. I began my love for this movie by being a Jim Carrey fan. And I was 10 when this came out, so I was already entrenched in my love of The Mask mm-hmm. and Liar Liar and, uh, you know, Ace Ventura, Mm -hmm. Dumb and Dumber. So I I thought he was a genius. Obviously, a 10-year-old boy is going to love everything Jim Carrey does. He makes big, broad comedy Mm -hmm. for families, and and 10-year-old boys are kind of the prime demographic of that. So I saw this film in cinema, 10 years old, expecting to see something more in line with that. And I remember leaving the cinema with my, I think, my mum and a couple of friends, and we were all a bit confused and disappointed by what this film was. You know, we were expecting a Dumb and Dumber type film, and we got an existential crisis. Mm. And I didn't really understand the significance of this TV world, you know, because Big Brother, I don't think, had come out yet. I think uh, no. this, this predates- is the year before Big Brother drops. The, the year and before like- Big Brother. The next decade would be reality shows that encompassed, like, every kind of aspect of the world. So, there was no... There was no... This wasn't riffing on something that was already happening. I know the real world existed in America, Mm -hmm. and there was... The MTV show. Yeah, and there was things like Taxi Cab Confessions and whatnot. So, there was a hint of this type of thing, but it wasn't as global as it would become... I will say I left the cinema disappointed, but it never left me. I was mm-hmm. always it it always stayed in my head. And then in the years coming, sort of, you know, around the time that I was turning twelve, thirteen, we had this film on DVD as well, and myself and my brothers became obsessed with this movie. We watched it constantly. We thought it was genius. We thought it was funny. We thought it was a superb uh, like vehicle for this this 
type of James Carey performance. I feel like he should have changed his name wow. to James Carey here because he elevates himself. He's no longer Jim, you know. This yeah. is a this is a mature man giving us a performance that he'd never given us before, and I love it. This is a top ten film for me. Wow, forever. I God. I forget how much I love it, and then I watch it again. And I'm fucking swept in. Every element of this movie is amazing to me. Well, to all the reboot rats, if you are at home and you own a copy of The Truman Show, I suggest getting that DVD out, getting a Sharpie or some kind of marker, Mm. crossing out Peter Weir, changing it to Peter Weird, crossing out Jim Carrey, change it to James, and cross out Show and call it The Truman Film because this is a cinematic work of art, not some chintzy little TV show. This is a 1.5-hour-long movie. Or That's film, true. I should say. That's true. They should have called it the Truman film. They yes. really should have. <laughs> the, or the film about the Truman show, in brackets, a fictitious TV show about a guy that doesn't know he's on a TV show. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, I reckon we got to dive into this thing because I have a feeling we're going to be very excited to talk about it. Yeah, you have a feeling and that feeling's freaking correct, baby. Let's do it. 30 years ago, the Omnicam Corporation created the ultimate reality-based television experience, The Truman Show. Beginning with the child's birth, they set out to document an entire human life. Every single moment broadcast live to the world. They created his hometown of Sea Haven. All of it completely enclosed within the dome of the Truman stage. Cue the sign. And even though The Truman Show has become an international phenomenon, Truman himself has never learned the true nature of the world around him. It's television! Yes! Despite some close calls, every aspect of his life has been carefully scripted and meticulously crafted. But the one thing no one could predict was who Truman Burbank would grow up to be. Good morning! Morning! Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> the Truman Show, 1998, directed by Aussie filmmaker Peter Weird. Alexi, have you found a synopsis somewhere on the internet? And will I love that logline? I have a feeling you will love this logline because it will be delivered to you the same way that I ever first even had an inkling about what The Truman Show will be. Great. And I think you're going to recognise the guy that is going to tell it to you. But let's start with Truman Burbank, Jim Carrey, who's Mr. Average, and lives in an ordinary house in an ordinary American town called Seahaven. He has an ordinary job in the office of an insurance company. He has an ordinary wife called Merrill, Laura Linney, and ordinary friends and neighbours. It's true there are a couple of clouds on Truman's horizon. He has a fear of water as a result of a long-ago boating accident in which his father drowned. And since Seahaven is on an island, this fear restricts his movements. Also, he has a secret yearning for Lauren, Natasha McElhone, whom he had loved as a student. But apart from these minor worries, all's well in Truman's world. Except that, unknown to him, it's all fake. Truman is the innocent star of his own TV show, a show conceived by brilliant TV producer Christoph Ed Harris. Nothing is really what it seems to be. David Stratton there. Yes, David Stratton from the movie show. The first time I ever heard about The Truman Show was him and Margaret's review on TV, and I was able to find the audio for it. And did they love it? 
I think so. I actually stopped yeah. watching after he kind of did the introduction about what the movie was about, and then I was like, you know, it's up to me to review it now. For any I'm of the our, sons uh, of Margaret and David. That's true. For any of our international uh, guests, David Stratton is an Australian critic who is, uh, along with Margaret Pomerantz, they ushered in an era of cinephilia to mm-hmm. this country, and Alexi and I are the offspring of this era. Without David and Margaret, we wouldn't be here. That is true. And you might know David Stratton and Margaret Pomeranz best known for their appearance on Finding Desperado. Yeah, both of them appeared in Finding Desperado. Hey, um, speaking of Australians, I want to throw something out at you that I didn't know. I was doing a little reading for this episode. Did you know that the original script for this film, um, written by Kiwi, actually? Andrew really? Nichol, Andrew Nichol. Oh, of course. I forgot Andrew Nichol was Kiwi. Yeah, Kiwi. Um, was It was written set in New York City and Peter Weir when he came on board he said well people wouldn't watch this if it was just a real life show set in a dark dank rainy old skyscraper filled city Uh, he said people would only watch this if it was set somewhere beautiful and his biggest reference point for how this should look was the Australian soap opera Home and Away whoa wow he was saying, like, this is a huge hit in Australia and in the UK. Millions upon millions of people watch Home and Away every week, which is set in a beachside, beautiful town in Australia. Um, and there's a reason people watch it is because it looks nice. So we mm. need to find a location that looks as pretty as Home and Away does. And that's that... why they moved it to Florida. God, he's a freaking genius. Right? Because, <laughs> like... I- because in your head you go, oh yeah, New York City, it's so exciting. All the movies I watch are set in New York. But this is a TV show that the grips the- 24 m- hours a day. <laughs> 24 hours a day, a mainstream audience looking for some kind of escapism. Uh-huh. And what is more powerful form of escapism than showing you a glimpse of a utopia where everything is beautiful, everything is clean, everything feels so like ordinary life, but the best version of ordinary life where everyone has like these beautiful seaside homes. Mm -hmm. Everything looks like the the color palette of a holiday home, a holiday lifestyle postcard. Mm. It's got that 1950s, American suburban utopia feeling mm-hmm. that is like often subverted by people like David Lynch or John yeah. Waters, but then it's like capturing it from another absurdist, subverted angle by just going full Norman Rockwell, like mm. beautiful watercolored painting at it. I think it's such a funny and interesting reference point for a, what ended up becoming a mainstream big, you know, Hollywood film that it was kind of inspired by this. Low, I mean, you'd call it lowbrow when you're Australian soap opera. It's a big hit and people love it, but it's such a funny reference point for this type of film. Totally. Um, God, it's a good looking movie, too. I mean, we let's not start there, though. Let's start with James, I think. We've got to start with James, the titular Truman. Yeah, I read that Peter Weird found Jim Carrey to be the lead of this film from seeing Ace Ventura and thinking how much he reminded him of Charlie Chaplin. And that's just... I I think Peter Weir gets so much now 
respect for his idea of casting, especially when the Power of the Dog has come out. People have been talking about how Benedict Cumberbatch was cast kind of against type to fit into the role even more because he has to prove who who he is. Mm. And that's something that Peter Weir has talked about um, so much in the way that he casts people is cast them slightly against type so they have to work harder to mm. find what the character is or to create a deeper meaning of it. And I think he calls it like the finishing touch. That's a very, very lovely... I love that sort of shit. It's, this is slightly tangent to that, but, you know, the song Ain't Too Proud to Beg? Is that the mm-hmm. Temptations song? Yeah. Um there's a little story behind that, which is that it was written for one of the singers, but they gave it to someone in the group who the song was slightly out of his register, so he had to wow. scream it a little harder, and it makes it so much more of a soulful song because you can hear the strain that the singer is putting into it. That's how I feel with this movie. I can see that Jim is budding. He's in his comfort zone at parts, especially the top half of the movie, right, where mm. he's kind of like a happy-go-lucky guy who has funny catchphrases and all that sort of shit. But and weird he, things are happening to him and he has to kind of react to them and stuff. And he's, like, stretching out of mm-hmm. his comfort zone into areas that are slightly more earnest. And I think he gets... That becomes his comfort zone after this movie. He's okay to do that and he's very good at doing that. But here, when he stretches out of the box a little bit, it feels so fucking real. Every time he has emotional moments, I fucking believe it. You know what I mean? I had full-blown chills when we see him see his father as a homeless man in the oh, street yeah. the first time in this film. Mm. I I felt every ounce of that moment, and it's all because of, obviously, the great filmmaking, but so much of Jim Carrey's really open portrayal of Truman and- one of the things that kind of like sticks with me when I think about this movie is this the phenomenon that kind of gets explained so much after this film. And we basically have only lived in the wake after this film has come out. You know, mm. I, be- I believe our consciousness kicks in around the time that the Truman Show even comes out into the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that idea of what is now known as the Truman Show delusion, where, you know, it's, it's, it's now kind of. The base idea of the Truman Show is you think that the TV show is being made about your life. And I feel like Jim Carrey has talked about it. And I've heard so many podcasts with comedians and, you know, even had talks with comedians about the idea of like when you're a kid feeling like you are performing all the time and uh, maybe someone's watching you if it's God or a TV show or whatever. Mm. But the idea of like performing all the time. And I've heard Jim Carrey talk about how. He is someone that grew up with a sick mother or mm. and he would basically be entertaining her all the time because he loved hearing her laugh and that's when he felt the happiest. Mm. And I think that idea of that person being the lead of a TV show who is completely unaware he's the lead of a TV show, finding the entertainment for himself and also, you know, he... There's moments where Truman starts to have the inkling that he could be the lead of a TV show and he starts doing like those improvisations in front of the mirror. Like, you know, he becomes the president of Trumania of the Burbank Mm. universe, the Burbank galaxy. And I feel like that this might be 
one of the realest Jim Carrey performances, the realest we get an insight mm. into an aspect of who this guy is. And that's saying something because I think there's a few performances and Jim Carrey is guilty of being an actor that has really shown so many different angles of himself that all equate to being something very authentic and real. Mm, yeah, very true. But the, you're right, this does feel the most like him because he is a ham and he's incredibly earnest. He has both sides of the coin and this film gets... We get to see both of that. I want to talk a little bit about the way this movie begins because it's always something I forget, oh, yes. which is that this movie begins almost with a... What would you... It's like a behind-the-scenes special or like a documentary making of... You it's know, an introduction to the world of The Truman Show uh, for the perspective of the audience watching the TV show, The Truman Show. I'm Im- immediately immersed in it. As soon as it begins, we meet uh, Truman performing to the camera, unaware that he's being filmed, and that's intercut with his wife, or the actress mm-hmm. playing his wife, the actor playing his best friend, all giving talking heads about their life working on the Truman Show, and you meet Christoph very briefly, um, Mm -hmm. giving a little explanation of how beautiful it is to, like, film a life, and we all get to witness it in all this kind of shit. And, by the way, we don't see Christoph again for another hour. He disappears after that opening minute, and then we meet him again at an incredibly beautiful moment later on in the film, an hour later. But what an amazing way to suck you into the world. that It's sort of like... It's sort of like we're watching a like Spinal Tap or something. It's a little mm. bit of a mockumentary. And then we're sucked in and immediately we see the light fall from the lighting rig in the sky and crash in front of him. I think it's incredibly amazing that they didn't set this film up as a mystery. I think mm. it's really cool that all the cards are on the table right from the beginning. We're watching a show about a a movie about a guy who doesn't realize he's on a show and the cracks are available for all of us to see right away, but he can't see them. I think that's so cool. It's truly like, it's unfathomable to me that this is the way that you would put this movie together. Totally. And that it is the most correct way to do it. Because like you said, we are invited to a world where we know the truth of The Truman Show Mm. and we deeply understand what the premise is through exposition, just being told in really exciting, funny, strange, weird exposition, like through Mm. a TV show. Then you live a full day in the life of Truman as he sees the world. And you get those little hints and glimpses that there's more to the world than he understands, but he still sees them. And you kind of see it through his mind as well, where we get access to his recollections and stuff Mm. and to his memories of himself and the memories of his life as he's seen it. And all the way throughout it, you're kind of like spotting little things that could be cameras. Like you see the one on his (laughs) ring and you're like, that has to be a camera. Who else has a big black diamond? (laughs) The one on the bin. You see that big black dot. You see like those two weird twins just pressing him up against (laughs) clearly an ad that is selling advertising space. They have no reason to talk to him, but they know that they have to get 15 seconds of like a clean shot of this (laughs) chicken shop or whatever the fuck (laughs) And then like also... Like, the moments where you realize you're seeing the movie from one of the cameras from the TV show. Because it's like a little black vignette, vignette. Mm. slight vignette around the camera. And you're kind of like spotting like these diegetic shots where you're like, oh, okay, I guess I'm 
Truman's ring camera looking at this yeah. dog, or I I'm am the neighbor, or I'm the neighbor the boss. holding the yeah. bin, and it's like it is. I'm the true. clock radio. Yes, know? I'm the freaking dashboard. Yeah, and it's so like brilliant the kind of the calibration that he's had to go. Well, here's what I'm going to show you. Here's how I'm going to show it, and here's how you're going to feel through every shot. And it's interesting thinking of this as like a voyeur type movie because I've mm. never really thought about it as being a voyeur type movie until this rewatch because do you know who was the director attached just before Peter Weir came on board? I do, but I want to hear you say it. Dirty old peephole himself, Brian mm. De Palma and presumably Mr. De Palma and his five daughters as well. Yes, Dirty De Palma was attached to this <laughs> and it's a different movie if he's attached mm-hmm. to it. And uh, do you think Truman's whacking off if you're if you're people through <laughs> the Palmer people? Well, I'll tell you this: I read the. Um, there are many alternate versions of this screenplay floating around on the internet, and through the years, I've read a couple of them because wow, I've okay. been fascinated by this film. Early drafts uh, by Andrew Nicole, before it was reworked by Peter Weir, and uh, one of the early drafts that I read, which I think coincides with De Palma being attached, it's a much darker film. First of all, it's set in New York City that is constantly uh, raining. It's yeah, a, like, it's, it's a dirty little city, I'd say. It's, yeah, it's sort of like it's it, it. The way it's described, it's more like the movie Seven. Like it's wow, a constantly okay. raining, dark New York City, and Truman is an alcoholic. Truman is drinking the whole way through the first hour of this movie. Having he has sneaky little flasks that he hides, and he's hiding it from his wife. And um, he does a, a few more depraved things. Like, it's almost like we're voyeurs of a guy who's on the edge of going insane. He sort of, he does some things that are a little bit psychotic. He witnesses an attack and he doesn't act on it. So oh, wow. the, the people at home are kind of watching a guy who's being passive in a world of crime, essentially. It's not my cup of tea, I will be honest with you, but the, a lot of the great elements of that screenplay are then reworked and reframed in the one that we ended up getting as the shooting script. Um, so, yes, I think with the Palmer attached, we get a different movie. We get a darker movie. And maybe it's still interesting and still raises some cool questions. But I believe that Peter Weir's reframing of this as a sunny film mm. and uh, as a bright film, as a film that verges on comedy at times, verges on the romantic... I think we get a better and more interesting version of what these mindfuck films are. And I'll tell you another thing I really like about what Peter Weir did, and we've already kind of discussed it here, is that he removed any element of mystery Mm. from the screenplay. So the way that the original script is written, we don't know that this is a guy who's part of a TV show until about 40 minutes into the screenplay. Oh, so you're kind of thinking he's like delusional or schizophrenic or something. Exactly. It's a bit of a mystery. Like, is is he witnessing something that's a fading reality? Is he crazy? Whatever. And then the big reveal is no, he's actually being watched by millions of people around the world. And that's interesting and cool. But I think, as we've already said, it's, it's just so much funner to start the film where we already know that. Mm. And, I mean, we've already seen the fucking trailers for this movie. It's called The Truman Show. So, we know what we're getting into. Why would you bother fucking around with any mystery? Let's just launch into it. And that way, we're, we feel real empathy for Truman the whole way through because we know the truth and he doesn't. And that's, mm. that makes us pity him, in a way, right from the beginning. 
I think also with that change comes something that I think is so key to this movie working and also probably the reason that we overlooked it when we were putting our original like slate of seven films together for this miniseries is that moving this from New York into a seaside sunny summer town like Amityville in Jaws or something, Mm. it takes away the spotlight from the science fiction and speculative fiction element of this. And I think that works so well in creating this film's unique identity because all the sci-fi elements are still there, but they're there Mm. in the philosophy of the film and they're there in the thematic of the film. And it gives it such a distinct character from what we think of sci-fi and speculative films to be. And even to the t- takes it away from the films that come into Andrew Nichols' career as a filmmaker, as a director later on, that kind of tread the line between speculative sci-fi fiction and presenting some kind of form of the world as we see it today, like Gattaca and... Yeah. In Time, the movie I always want to call Justin Time, because Justin Timberlake <laughs> is the lead, or... Yeah. One that I think we probably still should watch on our Patreon, Simone, uh, the Al Pacino-generated uh, actress movie. Yeah, but- I feel like Simone... I haven't seen Simone, but I've seen the trailer and I know about it. It feels mm. like it has the most in common with the Truman Show. Yes. Thematically, right? Yeah, thematically, kind of artistically, but also yeah. like... So really, I can't. We have to watch it, Cam, because it's such a strange movie. Um, yeah. It's. I think you'd get a huge kick out of it because it's like a Hollywood satire. But yeah. then you're like, a satire on what? Like, how do you direct actors? And how directors <laughs> actors don't listen to directors? What is this talking about? Yeah, I love that. I love the idea that it's a satire of something that doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but with the Truman Show, like all the science fiction vision of this is in that office up in the moon the yeah. fake moon it feels like dr evil's lair comes out around the same time as well it does feel like a dr evil lair yeah um and that i think is so key to have like the juxtaposition of the world that christoph has created and the world that christoph lives in which is also his creation good lord i love that and you know what that only comes in an hour in that's the first time we see the control room and there's about 40 minutes left on the film and it comes at the moment that you were talking about uh later on which is when truman is reunited with his long-lost father and it's kind of scored and and choreographed like a soap opera you know mm-hmm. this man emerging out of the mist and his been he's been away for 20 years and he's reunited with a beautiful hug and the score crescendos and then it cuts up to Kristov up in the clouds watching it almost like a fucking conductor of an orchestra like and being moved by the moment himself and kind of being brought to tears as Truman hugs his father and calls him dad and everyone in the control room starts applauding Kristov for putting this moment together And for me, it's like it's a very beautiful, emotional moment in the movie. And then it's elevated by showing how fake the whole fucking thing is. And that it was Mm. all masterminded by this guy with a Bluetooth headset in. Who then immediately leaves the room, goes into a fucking interview with Harry Shearer. Where he talks about the behind the scenes of this moment. And we are again given the, uh, the, the moment to see just how fake it all is where... He's like, yeah, look, the actor, uh, we wrote him out a long time ago and he broke back into the set and we figured may as well put him back in the fucking show again, I guess. And uh, 
And Harry Shearer, as the Hollywood reporter interviewer, is going, how are you going to explain his 20-year absence? And Christoph says, amnesia. And yeah. Harry's like, brilliant. You're a genius. You're a genius. <laughs> You're a genius. It's so funny. It's so funny that it's just this classic soap opera story that everyone in the world is deciding is genius. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I think one of the things as well that I loved so much about this rewatch is something I touched on a little bit earlier, but the idea of recollection. Like, we see one of Truman's memories more from his perspective earlier when we see his father being swept away in the ocean Mm, mm. and it's so dramatic and powerful. Then later on, we see kind of like this clip package of highlights, the best of from Truman's life, and Mm. we see this like in being watched by people out there in the real world facing TVs. We see it from a bar that presumably only ever watches the Truman Show. Yeah, it's like a called the Truman Bar. bar. It's, um, Is it? Yeah, there's a sign in the background, in the deep background. Oh, wow. It's called like the Truman Bar and it's a dedicated Truman like drinking hole where people around the world gather and watch it and drink right. and talk about the best parts of Truman. <laughs> that's crazy. That's so that's a prediction that never came true about reality TV. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. That would be awesome if you could go to a bar that's like, yep, we're the Top Chef bar. We just watch Top Chef all the time. <laughs> the world building, bits. though, man. And the world building of those sequences mm-hmm. where we see the Truman bar, we see these two security guys mm-hmm. watching it, we see these two older ladies that have Truman merch in their yep. house. One of them's hugging a, a pillow, a Truman pillow. And they're even wearing the 90s that you see Laura Linney wear in the show because everything is for sale on that show it's honestly like the world building in this movie is insane i kind Mm -hmm. of i watch it and feel like i wish i got more from Mm -hmm. the the behind the scenes shit you know like i want to know about the dad who disappeared for 20 years and broke back into the set i want to know about all the other people that have tried to break in and tell the truth to truman through the years and all that it's like it's honestly sensational storytelling And even when we see, like, those clip packages of, like, Truman's life through his kind of, like, a mixed perspective, his perspective and the perspective of the show, Mm. I got to say, Jim Carrey's performance where he's playing a college-aged Truman Mm. and there's no makeup, there's nothing Mm. to distinguish him. It's through this body language where he just transforms himself to be so boyish physically and so, like, full of a different energy, like this kind of naive energy, which is so... I mean, I never think of Jim Carrey as one of the great... I think of him as, like, a great physical comedian all the time because that's Mm. who he is. But I never think of him as someone that physically embodies something. Mm. And to see him bring so much physicality to... This nuanced take. I mean, not nuance is probably the wrong word, but to I this take on like playing I think younger. It's nuanced, man. I, I really do. I think we like we can overlook the nuance of it because there is broad comedy involved in it. Mm-hmm. But that's that's a, just another gear that he has to work with there. Like there is genuine emotion at the core of this character, and he's embodying that physically. And then on top of that, he also has to be um, funny as well. You know, like and goofy because. That's the movie that this is. He's actually doing some... Like, it's the best work of his career, I think, in this movie, really. Yeah, I think it's between this and Mr. Popper's Penguins for what I think is his greatest works. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, we wanted to do Mr. Popper's Penguins on this <laughs> miniseries, but it didn't quite fit. Yeah, we will try to squeeze it in, but you're like, you know what, let's just do Truman Show instead. It's almost as good. <laughs> almost. Yeah, let, can we uh, can we talk a little bit, now that we're in the college era, can we talk mm-hmm. a little bit about the um, romantic subplot of this film? Yeah, I think we have to. I, this was my first introduction to Natasha McElhone. Yeah. And... For my whole life, the way that she's introduced to to us in this movie, I have just thought that this is one of the most exquisite introductions to a character where you truly believe, like, the angelic beauty that Truman feels towards her. And I've felt it for my whole life. I'm like, why isn't this one of the biggest movie stars in the world? That's one of the greatest movie star entrances any actor's ever had into the world. But then no one really picked up exactly what to do with her until the TV show Californication perfectly cast her as David Duchovny's cool ex-wife. Yeah, I think she's currently working on another series that's doing pretty well as well. I looked her up recently and I've seen her on posters for things lately. So she's had a great working career, but you're right. This introduction She's like freaking Simone or something. She's like Sim 1. <laughs> she's like Simulation 1 or something. <laughs> my favourite full name of my favourite actress, Simulation 1. Simulation 1 from a movie I've never seen. <laughs> she's like, uh, yeah, this movie like really worships her. Like it's... Mm. Like, we get... Before we even meet her, we see that he's ripping out pages from fashion magazines to try and make a composite version of her, like, yeah. through mosaic cut-and-paste style. Truman's one of the great colli- college... <laughs> one of the great co- collage, collage, collage artists And then we see her in flashback, <laughs> mm-hmm. and then we see that she's watching the show as well. And it, yeah. adds, it adds its own collage, its own mosaic of emotions to the film where... First of all, it's the mystery of who's he trying to make with this collage. Then yeah. it's oh, it's her from his past, and, and he's then doing it's, good. It looks and it looks like her. like her. And then it's oh my god, she's still watching him. She loves mm. him too. And neither and neither of them have any way of contacting each other except through this. This yeah. little it's truly beautiful, and also you know it also here's what I love about it. It's incredibly romantic, incredibly mm. emotional, but it's undercut with this, like, paranoid thriller element of it, where he is drawn to her, but the producers of the show do not want him to be with her, so they're doing everything they can to, like rip her out of scenes and cut cut her away and he's and shove Laura Linney in his face mm. and Laura Linney comes in in this great comedy moment where she's like pretending to have hurt her ankle and have a meet cute with him you know oh my god <laughs> so i got to say the Laura Linney performance in this my big star of the movie oh, wickedly like oh just a completely wickedly wicked, talented a wickedly talented <laughs> but like a wicked performance like the way that she has to play so many different facets of like playing this actress mm. who is someone willing enough to give up their entire life to live as an actor on this TV show yeah i know what you mean it's incredibly when you really peel back the layers and think about it it's incredibly dark what and- what all of these characters have to do, but in particularly, uh, in particular, her character who has to pretend to be in love with this guy twenty four seven when she clearly doesn't. She doesn't she like him. Doesn't she doesn't like him. She has to sleep with him. She has to be married to him. Like she has to try and get pregnant for, for like to get a bonus to get a raise. And yeah, like- it's that's really dark. So 
it's an incredibly nuanced performance from her too because she's playing comedy she's playing dark drama um she's playing love interest it's all happening for laura linney in this fucking role here dude and then she has to like subvert all this like 1950s sitcom wife type stuff yeah. as well like to play into that to have the look of that <laughs> and then to just be like crumbling behind it she has to do ad reads <laughs> Uh, the ad reads that she has to do is the best, funniest parts of the whole movie. Like, it's they, like, they no crush shit, so hard. It's, it's like, it oh, crushes. this Coco's awesome. Yeah, the fucking chef's friend thing that she does, the rotor, like the new lawnmower that gets mm-hmm. a push in on her face. That Coco bit where, you know, she, he's just taken her for this psychotic joyride around mm. the city and she's scared. And he's having a breakdown, and she decides in that moment as an actor. I think it's the actor's choice. I don't think the producers told her to do it. I think she doesn't know how to handle his meltdown, and she decides to (laughs) do a big plug for this new Coco (laughs) in the middle of his meltdown because as an actor, she doesn't know what else to do. Mm. It's so funny, and so you can see how scared she is while she's doing it. And then his response, you know, it's like a, it's an iconic moment in the movie where he's mm-hmm. sort of, he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Who are you talking to? And he stands up and he's like, so freaked out by what she's doing. That yeah. moment, like, it is from both of them, some of the best acting mm-hmm. of their career. I think uh, Jim, yeah. I believe that Jim is falling apart at the scenes in that moment. And he he is so terrified at the fact that his wife is so disconnected to him. If you really stop and think about what that character is going through, it's a man who's having an existential crisis and believes that his world is falling apart and his wife is not listening to him. And she's talking about Coco. And she's afraid of him. It's truly scary shit what that character is going through. And it's performed with that perfect blend of drama and comedy. I can't... Dude, I'm so in love with this movie. (laughs) It rocks. And Laura Linney, we know, is already... Like, when you think about her career, you think about her as being, like, an an actor of immense talent that can play incredibly complex things. And I think her doing this is, like, an unsung greatest performance of her whole career because it Mm. is such a weird blend of things that she just, like, beautifully embodies in such a strange, bizarre way. I can't imagine another actor being able to, like, really capture it in just the right moment. Like, imagine it's a dream. Like, every performance in this movie Mm -hmm. is kind of a dream role for any actor. But to get to do that particular scene where you're scared that... You're scared that Truman's going to hurt you, mm-hmm. but you're also trying to sell a product. And <laughs> You're and trying to keep your job. You're trying to keep your job. You're calling out to the producers of the show to intervene. And yeah. then she gets that incredibly dramatic moment when um, his friend, his best friend bursts in to mm. save the day with a six-pack. Love that. Uh, um, who is it? Noah Emerson, right? Noah Emerson breaks in. Uh, Noah Emmerich, sorry. Noah- Emmerich. God, he's good. And she hugs him and she's breaking down and she's she gets that funny dialogue where she's breaking down where she's saying, how am I expected to carry on under these conditions? It's like an actor yeah. breakdown there at this yeah. point. It's truly like, I think if you were reading this as an actor, this screenplay, you'd be like, fucking hell, this is the best thing I'm ever going to yeah. have to do. How the fuck am I going to do this thing? <laughs> <laughs> it's unbelievable. As well, Ed Harris mm. as Christoph, it's like... 
a moment of perfect casting at the right time because originally cast in this role was Dennis Hopper. And I can see Dennis Hopper wow. doing like the God thing really well. Mm. But there is something that Ed Harris brings, which is the gentleness that I think Hopper has this edge to him. And I love seeing when Hopper does gentle stuff, but there is like this fucked up, deep caring thing that Ed Harris has. Mm. And he thinks he deeply cares about Truman, but it's really clear that he deeply cares about the art he's creating and not yeah. Truman's actual life. And him being like this godly artist up in the sky, like the creator of everything. Mm. I, I mean, he deserves that Oscar nomination that he got for it. It's a really interesting, it's a one of a kind performance. The only other characters like there's a freaking Willy Wonka and yeah. that's kind of it, you know? Yeah, I think, I don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast, but we definitely have in private conversations. And, and just to peel back the curtain, Alexi and I do often have private conversations. Yeah, they're off the record. We don't record everything we talk about. Sometimes we do confide in each other things. And yeah. this is going to be one of the great reveals of this podcast where Cameron will reveal something <laughs> that we confided in each other, Yeah, maybe related to Ed Harris. Yeah, I believe that in the past... We have discussed that Ed Harris is kind of one of the more unappreciated great actors of his generation. Mm. And he's given some 10 out of 10 performances through his career. I wish you had let me know earlier that this was what you're going to reveal on the podcast because, you know, that that was something I was going to take to my grave. Yeah, I think it's time that we come clean and talk about (laughs) that we love Ed Harris and, and that we wish people talked about him in the way they talk about a Bobby Duval or mm-hmm. a um, Harvey Keitel. We've got to talk about Ed Harris more because he is capable of so much. He is a strong, masculine, intense presence, which we've mm-hmm. seen most recently in things like Westworld yeah. or in um, Glengarry Glen Ross. Oh, God. Do you want me to perform the monologue, Cameron? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we need it right now. But, we, but he also is capable, as you said, of tapping into this real gentle, soulful mm. shit. And you can see it in his eyes that he fucking means it. When he's stroking mm. uh, Truman's face on the screen oh, and he's saying, I've been watching you since you were a little boy. I've watched your first steps. I've watched you your mm-hmm. whole life. He, in that moment, is Truman's father. And he bel- yeah. he feels the love. And I think that with any other actor, they'd be too tempted to go into the de- the dark depravity of a reality TV show producer. You know, they'd be mm-hmm. they'd be loving the fact that this guy is the kind of- The satirical nature. Yeah, the satirical nature, the benevolent uh, or God up in the sky who's in charge of life. But Ed Harris has decided, and maybe Peter Weir guided him too, that this is a man who, he, whether he does or not, he believes that he loves Truman. And this is breaking his heart to watch Truman walk away from the show. And fucking hell, I buy it, dude. I buy it. I think that entire final sequence is as good as the brilliance that we bestowed upon the opening sequence as well. Yeah, because man. we have the idea Truman has gone on the loose. He's been able to escape the cameras and he's conquering his fear of the ocean when he realizes that it's an irrational fear that has been bestowed upon him so he can't leave. And he's in that sailboat and we've got the waves crashing into him. God is testing him like freaking Job or Moses in the Bible. 
Bible mm. and God is testing him, trying to knock him back, but yet he still pursues his goal. He still tries to reach to the end of the world. And we have the moments where he's like, Christoph's like, okay, shine the light on him and mm. start talking to him. And it feels so powerfully biblical, like God talking mm. to Moses on the mountaintop and stuff. But then like we have... It's not the score, it's the soundtrack to the movie because yeah. it's the Philip Glass music from mm. the opening of Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters, the great biopic from Paul Schrader about uh, Japanese author Yukio Mishima. And that's like my favorite score to any film of all time. And I never realized that I heard it in the Truman Show first. Mm. And just hearing it kick in as like the sound like builds up as Truman decides to leave his world into the unknown. And the moment where we see Natasha McElhone at home watching Truman decide to leave the house to go meet him mm. as he leaves to go try and meet her. And then their meeting is in private. It is not for us to witness. Mm. It is their own meeting that happens off screen in the world when the movie ends is the best choice That's of the cinema whole film. Magic. That is mm-hmm. pure cinema magic to me. I think that fo- this movie is full of it, but that final... Uh, like 25 minutes from the escape onwards where it it goes from paranoid thriller to like deeply beautiful existential biblical like ascending the staircase into heaven essentially Mm -hmm. i think that's some of the most magical cinema that i've ever seen in my life and even this week watching it alone on my laptop in a hotel room i felt moved and i'll tell you what you're gonna hate this but there's one key moment in that sequence that really tipped me over the edge to, to the point of tears, and it involves an actor that you really don't like. And that but actor, he is fantastic in this movie. That actor is Paul Giamatti. He should never have ascended beyond this kind of role where he's like a little <laughs> mini guy who has a scene-stealing presence in these kind of small character it's actor really, positions. really wonderful stuff that he oh, is, he's God. just one of the studio guys. He doesn't even get a name. And Christoph tells him to hit Truman with the waves. I actually looked it up in the credits. He's credited as pig-like engineer. (laughs) Come on, dude. Yes, sure. He's a little piggish, but he has some of the most beautiful eyes that you've ever Mm -hmm. seen on the cinema. He he, he gets a beautiful little moment there. It's a little highlight for him where he refuses to do it. And he has tears in his eyes and he's kind of blubbering. And he says, like, Christoph, you're going to kill him. I'm not. I'm not going to do yeah. it. And it's like, oh That's my a god, good It's like, oh my god. Everyone in this fucking control room is invested in Truman's life. Everyone around the world watching it is invested in Truman's life. And you know what I love? I love that everyone wants him to get out. Mm. That says so much about how we view entertainment. It's like we actually want closure, right? Mm. We we don't want to watch Truman continue to live in this bubble. For 60 more years. Like, would it continue being a success? Probably not, because people would get bored watching the same thing day in, day out. When Truman decides to leave, the world cheers. The people in the Mm. bar that have devoted their lives to watching him cheer with excitement because they're watching Resolution. And that's something that we want as humans. We want someone to make a big decision and, and, and end the story. And I think that is so fucking cool that everyone around the world is excited for him to leave. I mean, it is just phenomenal filmmaking. And I think because it has this nice sheen to it all, you kind of 
it's easy to dismiss this movie if you're not watching it intently and absorbing it like through every facet of how like beautiful Peter Weir's filmmaking is. I think it's so easy to just dismiss this movie as going like, oh, that cool weird movie with Jim Carrey. Mm. But if you can just watch it, you're like you're watching some of the most thoughtful filmmaking on display in such a meta contextual way as well. Dude, I'm going to say it. I think this one is my favourite film that I've watched in this miniseries. Wow, okay. And I might even go so far as to say on this entire podcast. Wow, in the 16 years of Total Reboot, (laughs) this is the number one movie for you. It's only just dawning on me how much I love it. I mean, I I probably hadn't watched it in... A decade. I reckon it'd be week. 10, 12 years for me too. Just yeah. before we started doing the podcast. Just before, you were still a baby, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it was my first movie that I watched out of the corner of my father's eye, just twinkling away there. Yeah, but it's, um, yeah, I think it's really special. It's really fun. And like we said at the beginning, even though the philosophy of it is all quite surface level and basic. It's powerful filmmaking, mm. and it, it hits all those notes that you want in a movie. It's fucking funny. It's sweet. It's powerful. It's cool. It's awesome. It's sexy. It's exciting. It's got Jim Carrey in it. What more could you want from a film? I know. I know. And a lot of films do have Jim Carrey in it, but not all of them. Not all of them are sexy and cool and thoughtful <laughs> as well. Yeah, most films that have Jim Carrey aren't all those things. <laughs> But this is the one of the rare ones that is. It's like this, Mr. Popper's Penguins, and probably yeah. Sonic the Hedgehog 2, which is not out yet, but I not have a feeling yet. will be all those things. Yeah, we can only assume that it will <laughs> tick all the boxes. Based on the cardboard uh, cutout stand-ups for it I've seen around cinemas lately, it's going to be all those things. It's going to be freaking mind-melting, that movie. <laughs> um, this film was nominated for three Oscars Best actor in a supporting role for Ed Harris, best director for Peter Weir, and I believe they would have given to him as Peter Weir. That's what they would have inscribed on the freaking statue. Yeah, I believe so too. And best writing screenplay directly for the screen, Andrew Nicole. But I think we should give this movie a couple more Oscars, as I like to call them. Mm. Um, one of them for best character actor, and you mentioned someone that I'm willing to consider to bestow this award upon. Oh my God. I'm willing to consider the best character Oscar for someone who I shan't name, but I'm willing to consider it. Just name him. I can't say it. Say it. I want Paul, you to say it. Paulie G. Oh my Paul god. Paul Giamatti. He's this really great in this movie. Is unprecedented. Mm. To get Alexi Toliopoulos to give praise to Paul Giamatti is honestly. Mm. You know, Arthur had an easier time pulling the sword from the stone. That's all I'm gonna <laughs> say. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, I think he's perfectly, like, cast in this movie. I think this era, Paul Giamatti, like, 90s, where he just pops in for three scenes, like My Best Friend's Wedding, uh, sure. Donnie Brasco, all of these movies where he plays- I love him uh, in My Best Friend's Wedding. I just yeah, rewatched that. It's it's great. a great little sequence, right? Where he shares he's, a cigarette with Julia Roberts. He's freaking fantastic. Where he's playing, like, some guy who's stuck in a job that's, some like, schmo. not going anywhere. Yeah. Some schmo. <laughs> I love him. Like, Donnie Brasco- where he just plays one of the FBI agents that listens to tapes and is learning about Forget About It for the first time. Yeah, that's Love right. It. But he's perfectly poised and cast, and he's just great in this movie. Great character actor role. The other person I thought about, Holland Taylor as Jim's mother, oh, Truman's yeah, mom. I love her. She's fucking fantastic. 
And that's a great performance too. She is a great like TV and Broadway the- theatrical mm. actor in lots of great movies as well, like Keeping the Faith, Legally Blonde. Um, but I think that she is really great in this movie, especially if you look at it through like a metatextual way, where like now that we know she is like, you know, she's out of the closet, she's uh, life partners with uh, Sarah Paulson now. Mm. Metatextual way to have like this actress be forced to play the straight mother of this guy, I mm. think is adds another layer to her in this movie. Like just the idea of actors having to play actors and actors having mm. to live acting their world. Not unlike Joseph Piscone in um, Donnie Brasco, also featuring Paul Giamatti, <laughs> going undercover to bring the mob down. That is fantastic. I love both of those nominations and I'm happy to sign off on them and say yes, Good job. Good job. They're both great. A little quick shout-out. Not really eligible, I think, for an Oscar, but uh, Joel McKinnon Miller as one of the security guards in the garage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, I'm talking about that big guy with the flat top. <laughs> we love that flat top. We love that flat top fuck. He's now in, uh, well, he was in Brooklyn Nine-Nine mm-hmm. and became a featured player on that show. He now has success. But at this time, you know, just a jobbing actor with a flat top who got around yeah. in a few flicks. Just that guy that you see every... I mean, it's a true definition of a character. You go, oh, that yeah. guy with the flat top. Yeah. Everyone knows who we're talking about, that big guy with the yeah. flat top. He also gets the, the final line in the movie. Years. Oh, he, yeah, he gets he that gets last this, line. He gets the last line, which I think is the best part of... Like, the best button for mm-hmm. this movie, which is, oh, well, what else is on? Isn't yeah. that great? What a, great? That's Like, it sums up humanity so much. We've just witnessed... Like, they've just witnessed an entire man's life, mm-hmm. and it's over, and they're like, oh, well, we'll put on, we'll put on something else. And <laughs> ending on a joke with some real power to it is so good, I think. It's really good. I have a little bonus Oscar to give away. There's Please. a few things I considered. I considered giving an Oscar to the Truman Show Delusion, which is, of yep. course, famously uh, now a psychiatric term. Mm-hmm. And that's how you know you've really made it when there's a freaking term named after your film. is something that Andrew Nicole has expressed. But I want to give an Oscar to royalty-free music. <laughs> Because I think it is now my favourite joke in the Truman Show that I'd never noticed before until this watch, that all the music that Truman hears on his radio is just royalty-free classical music tracks. <laughs> because they don't have to pay any extra bills for the Truman Show to license to license music. Oh my god, that's so funny. I never would have clocked that. That's such a funny choice. It's so funny. The radio stuff is so funny on this movie. Yeah, I just love it. I love, man, the the gags in this movie are great. This really does deserve rewatches. You could mm-hmm. you can get so much more out of rewatching this flick. Yeah, the score alone was something I got so much out of this time because it is so much of it is built on Philip Glass's music, but it's often like repurposed tracks from him. Like there's some music from the Katsi movies. I think it's from Power Katsi, which I think is a second Katsi film, which are these documentaries that are just visual essays about the world um, set to Philip Glass's music. But the actual score is a collaboration between Philip Glass, but mostly from this Australian composer, Burkhard Dalwitz, who has not scored too many movies after this, but is like scores every big Australian TV show for the mm. last 30 years is all his music. And he was nominated for a Golden Globe. I think they even won. They share a Golden Globe for this film uh, for their compositions. But I, I love the score. I love the way Philip Glass's music is incorporated to have like 
Philip Glass's music has like this push and pull of the tides that I find very emotionally powerful and the way that's incorporated into the world of Truman I think there's nothing quite like it love that I want to give a little quick shout out again not Oscar worthy to the world building of this show I believe Mm -hmm. that uh, Peter Weir gave all of the performers uh, who were playing actors in this universe extensive backstories of what their actors are up to in the real world wow and uh, one of the ones that I've always loved learning from the, I think, the behind the scenes on the DVD when I was a kid was that Noah Emmerich's character is an actor who has been in and out of drug rehab through throughout the show. Wow. And there's, there's little hints at it throughout where they say that he went away for big chunks of time. Mm. You know, like Truman will go... Oh, yeah. Remember when you went traveling around the country as a vending machine yeah. <laughs> stalker or whatever? And uh, and then there's other bits when he's a teenager where, yeah, remember you went away for camp for four months or whatever? There's yeah. little hints of it, but it's never expanded upon. And I think it adds so much to that character Yeah, for you to subtly know that this is a guy who's been struggling with f- fame mm-hmm. and also the reality of what he's doing to a guy that he has to be his best friend. So he's like... He can't hack it, so he's fucking addicted to drugs, you know. It's a really fucking clever little bit of world building in this movie. There is a great moment with him where you see the actor playing the character, where we have that close-up, confided confrontation where Truman comes to him, and you're seeing them through a vending machine that he's stacking. There's a camera inside the vending machine, and you see him stacking it. And that's the whole conversation is taking place from that point of view. And there's a moment where Truman looks away and Noah Emmerich has finished stacking the machine. Mm. But to keep the conversation going in front of the camera, he just takes packets out and starts <laughs> stacking them again when Truman comes back to turn to him. <laughs> I never noticed that. That's so it's good. such a great moment. I've never seen it before. But seeing him do that, I was like, oh, man, that's the actor's brain working yeah. in real time. <laughs> oh, fuck. All right. We love this movie. This movie freaking rules. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, God almighty. Truman, you truly are the man when it comes to movies. As in, when I say the man, I'm talking about the Eugene Levy Samuel Mm. Jackson feature Mm. where it's one of the best movies of all time. Do you know that's one of the only movies, one of only two movies where Eugene Levy's name appears above the title? Wow. And he's been an actor for a long time. The other one is some other shitty 80s comedy, but... Yeah, oh, wow. in his entire career, he's only appeared above the title twice, and one of those is your favorite movie, The Man. Yeah, awesome movie. I've actually never seen it, but it's one of my favorites. Yeah, you love it. You love the idea of it. I did rent the DVD out, but when I put it in the player, it was just the trailer over and over again. I think that's all they ever got for that film. <laughs> they said, we'll film the trailer if people will buy that it's real. It's the only coverage they got. <laughs> All right, let's wrap things up. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Total Reboot Millennium Mindfuck miniseries. If you couldn't tell uh, or if you skipped to the end for some reason, basically, we like this movie. We think it's really cool, really awesome, and really special. And um, we think James Carey is one of the fantastic actors out there in the world. And Peter Weird needs to make a squeakquel. That's what we want. We want yeah. Truman 2. Tooman. The Tooman Show. Tooman. <laughs> the Tooman Show. We want Tooman Show. It's got too many in it. It's got two Trumans. <laughs> 
that's how we're rebuilding it, dude. That's it. It's the two man show. It's got two men in it. You yeah. Get, you get freaking Holland Taylor back as the mother of yeah. two and a half men. A yeah. Famous show that she plays the mother from. Uh-huh. Get her back. Now she's got two and a half men. You put Charlie Sheen, John Cryer in there, and the kid, <laughs> and you don't tell them that we're making a show about their whole life. So that's the whole reboot there, the two-men show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for listening. As you uh, may have heard at the start of this episode, mm-hmm. big things coming very soon on this feed and beyond. So mm-hmm. keep your eyes and ears peeled for that. In the meantime, Alexi, have you got stuff you'd like to plug? Uh, check out my podcast, Lived It with Jen Fricker. We've got some great episodes. We just talked to the Byron Bays. If you've been t- watching the docu-soap on Netflix, um, we had a crazy fun chat with a couple of those, Jade and Hannah from that show. Cam, you've got some cool stuff cooking around basically the whole country at the moment, right? Melbourne? That's right. That's right. I'm uh, currently touring my new stand-up hour, Electric Dreams, where I have dug up some songs that I wrote as a teenager, and I'm playing them live, and I'm I'm telling the backstory behind each of them. Um, I have just done the Gold Coast. That was a lot of fun. Thank you to the listeners who came out and checked out that show there. But next up, I'll be in Melbourne for the Comedy Festival April 12 to 24. And then following that, I will be in Perth May 7. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then Brisbane May 12 to 15. And then... Oh, no, sorry, and then Sydney, May 12 to 15, and then Brisbane, May 17 to 22, and then Newcastle after that at the end of the month on May 28. So if you want to buy tickets for that, all those links will be in the show notes, and I'd love to see you there. Click on through, babies, and purchase tickets. Lex, what the frick are we watching next? Well, next up on the show, we're continuing into the Millennium Mindfuck with... Darren Aronofsky's Requiem for a Dream. But until then, if you want to hear more from us, you can head over to patreon.com slash totalreboot and sign up for just five bucks a month to get access to bonus episodes where one of them, I promise you, I'm going to make Cameron watch Simone and we're going to freaking talk about Simulation 1, the great Al Pacino, (laughs) the early Al Pacino sci-fi movie from my recollection. And from the same writer as The Truman Show, and also, we want your suggestions for what you think we should add to the Millennium Mindfuck miniseries. we got room for a couple more episodes, so let us know what you think are essential to the experience of the Millennium Mindfuck. <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you later. And in case I don't see you later, good day, good evening, and toodaloo. Toodaloo.